Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Sheila E. is a world-class drummer and percussionist who's worked with some of the best-selling and most critically acclaimed artists of all time, including Marvin Gaye, Beyonce, Herbie Hancock, and Diana Ross. She was Prince's drummer and musical director during the period of recording and touring Sign of the Times, The Black Album, and Love Sexy, but was already an artist in her own right, having scored hits such as The Glamorous Life and A Love Bazaar. Her fusion of pop, R&B, funk, rock, Latin, and jazz influences make her a thrilling songwriter and performer. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2015 Red Bull Music Academy in Paris, she spoke about the rhythm of life on stage, in the studio, and on the road. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. How's everybody doing? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, let's try it one more time. How's everybody doing? All right, come on now. Uh, born and raised in Oakland, California. And my dad is a percussionist, Pete Escovito, still plays. Mexican and Indian. And my mom is Creole from New Orleans. So it's a little bit of... Mexican tacos and Creole gumbo mixed together. Sounds tasty. It's very good. Yeah, a little bit of, of everything together, which is, I think, a great combination. Probably one of the earliest collaborations you witnessed was your dad and your uncle. Uh, that was my dad and my uncle's band, my uncle Coke and my dad, Pete Escovito. And that was an 18-piece band. They put together at a time where Carlos Santana disbanded his band, and so part of Carlos's band went with my dad's band, and they had like three, four percussion players, three or four singers, like four horn players, two or three keyboard players, two guitar players, bass, drums. Uh, it was a it was a big band, and actually, um, right after that second record came out, the conga player, percussion player, got sick, and. I begged my dad to let me play the show with him because I know that whole record. And they rehearsed at the house in the living room. So I was like, please, can I play? And he said, uh, yeah, no, you're 15. You don't know anything. I'm like, Come on, Pops. So anyway, I ended up playing that show, one of those shows with that band. And that was the day I knew that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. You 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 get to sit in you you know i begged people i continued to knock on the doors and stand on the sides of these gigs where my friends were playing can i play can i play get away little girl can i play can i play i begged and they're like no 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 finally i started getting on stage i just kept bothering people <laughs> can i play okay you can play and the more i sat in and i'd sit in with anyone it didn't matter i just wanted to play that experience you can't pay for you can't learn you have to do it and so that experience, when I finally got to play with my dad at 15, you get into a situation where you this band was signed to, with Clive Davis, CBS. They're touring with Stevie Wonder, Temptations, Earth, Wind & Fire. And I get to play with them. And all of a sudden, I thought I played okay. But then you play with these musicians who the level is like a list of artists and musicians. And it brought me to a place that I had never been. So... 
I really had to play. I had to, you know, sit up straight and really, you know, buckle down. And my dad told me, take a solo, you know. I started playing a conga solo. And you have 18-piece band burning, playing. You just get to that place where, you know, again, I had never experienced before. And that's when I realized this is what I wanted to do. But I really had to work hard to to get there, you know. So um, that was a great opportunity and a great band. So what can you tell the world um, about Coke Escovito? Coke Escovito is my uncle and uh, has passed away a long, long time ago. Incredible percussion player. Him and my dad played. He was the younger brother. And uh, they both played congas and timbales and switched off all the time. And then my Uncle Coke went on his own to, to do his own records. It just reminds me of being home and being with my family and, and seeing him, which, you know, after a while when someone has passed so long, you kind of forget about them. And, you know, being percussion players uh, back in the day, I mean, there weren't a lot of percussion players who were leading their own bands, you know, except for Tito Puente. Well, that was one, or Mongo Santa Maria, or, you know, people like that uh, from Cuba, Puerto Rico, New York. So for the e that's the the East Coast, and the West Coast didn't have too many uh, percussion players who were well-known, and my uncle and my dad were too uh, from the West Coast. And um, that was just great to hear how they used percussion as, uh, like, it, it, you can hear how somewhat of, of Barry White being influenced by that kind of vibe, you know, the conga being really... Uh, out there in the front with the low voice and you know the strings and horns and stuff. So, um, speaking of East Coast, this also became known as so-called loft classic, something that was played in the New York dance scene and by DJs like David Mancuso and all these early pre-house parties and stuff. Were you guys aware of that on the other side of the coast of that N dance scene? No, not at all. We had no idea. And that's the thing about when you're you're playing music, you're writing music, you're a part of something that you're creating. You don't realize how many people or that you touch all over the world. You have no idea, you know, until someone shares it with you, you know. But we didn't know that because there was somewhat at this time, there was a rivalry rivalry between the East Coast and the West Coast music of Latin music, you know, um, traditional salsa or Latin jazz. There was a little bit of a thing happening between the East Coast and West Coast. You frequently mentioned Tito Puente now. Um, he was a frequent guest in the household. Mm -hmm. But he was from the East Coast, right? Yeah. Uh, him and my father, he would play in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And uh, he would come and visit my dad. And they were friends, I think, at 15 or 16 years old. And so he, Tito Puente kind of became like my godfather. There were times when I was going to play uh, in different situations um, outside of the Bay Area. And if I'd fly to do a session in L.A. or some other places, uh, it was kind of weird because, like I said, no one really knew who I was. But Tito helped us to get a name as well because he always allowed us to come and sit in if we were by him or at one of the shows. He'd invite us up on stage. And he always told me, don't, you know, don't pay attention to those people They're, they're not doing anything. You come and play with me and just do what you do. So, you know, you have people like that and uh, that can help you along as well. He was a great influence, very, very uh, generous man. What did you learn in person it's like from a performing artist like him? Um, he always gave it 150% like my dad, the, the two of them being influenced by both of them, you know, to just go for it all the time. 
just do it, you know, just get in there and do it and play no matter what happens. Sometimes, you know, the monitors, we didn't have monitors. You couldn't hear each other. We had to look at each other and then really pay attention because, you know, you've got three or four percussion players and a drummer. You can't hear anything. You just have to watch each other and just play. So when you're playing with that caliber of, of artists and musician, you want to do your best and raise the bar, you know, and you want to you want them to say that they are proud of you. So you really want to, you know, do your best every single time. It seems to be a really physical thing as well to play like that. Oh, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> After a while, I mean, playing congas, I don't play them as much, but I still play and I love to play. But there were times, you know, again, when I was playing with George Duke and we were playing for months at a time <clears throat> and um, my hands would start bleeding, you know, just because I'm hitting on something that is a skin that after a while you're playing every single day for a month, you know, you get calluses, but then they're bleeding. And then it just, after a while I would have to, before we went on stage, I would backstage, I would hit against the wall or the brick wall or the dressing room to numb my hands before I went on stage. because they hurt so bad. And that was for years. I did that for years because I loved it. You know, you have to again, endure the pain. Um, From playing drums, I mean, you know, I used to play with the cymbals way up high and I had like eight cymbals and ten toms and two kick drums and, you know, all kind of stuff. And and then I got a tear in my shoulder and then rotator cuff and then I had a little, opera, not like an operation kind of here in my elbow, my wrist. And after a while you go, okay, let me break it down and <laughs> put everything really close so I can reach it and... uh And it just feels better. So I'm constantly adjusting things so that it feels good. It feels comfortable. You know, later on, I mean, these injuries come from me learning that I should have been warming up when I play. I didn't realize it's like I just go out and play on stage and play as hard as I can. And then you do that for like four hours every day. And, and then you get off stage and your hands are bleeding. Everything hurts. And you just go, well, I'll do it again tomorrow. It's almost like listening to an athlete talk yeah. about their career and, like, and the repercussions they go through. But um, a professional athlete has only so many years in their career. I mean, 10 if they're lucky. You right now said 41 years on yeah. stage. Yeah, and I, I'll be here another 41 years. Less? Absolutely. So I guess at a certain time you need to come up with a regiment where you think like, okay, how much of myself can I actually throw into this? And where do I draw the line that people that actually come to see me still get the performance they want, but I keep enough of myself to endure and make sure I'm there for the next week, the next month, the next 41 years. You would think that that would be what I would do, and it's not. <laughs> no, I don't kind of reserve. There's no reserve for me. I just go all out every single show, whether I hurt myself or not. One thing I have learned is that before I play, I, I at least take my sticks and, and either something that's semi-hard so that I can warm up for 15 minutes with the sticks, it actually helps me loosen up and get the blood flowing in my hands. It's worse when I'm playing outside because the temperature changes the drum heads, the, you know, they're damp or it's too hot and then the skins are low. It changes everything. But warming up at least 15 minutes has been a life changer. The drum seat, that's not mine, but the drum seat that I use now has a hydraulic. I've had injuries. My back went out. 
I was semi partially paralyzed for two weeks. They wanted me to get an operation. Um, I went to four doctors for four months to to learn how to walk around the corner. It took that long. But I realized because you have seen me play in high heels. Today you see I have on tennis shoes. Uh, <laughs> playing in high heels, playing drums was the worst thing I could have ever done. I played timbales playing in my heels, but then after a while, like three or four songs in, um, I take my heels off and I'll play without any shoes. But what ended up happening, ha being in my heels like this, shortened my calf muscle from playing, and I didn't realize it, which then twisted my whole body like this. My back went out, and and then after that, then my lung collapsed. I don't know what happened. I was tired. So, <laughs> so then my body said, okay, you need to stop and, you know, chill out for a minute. So I learned how to pace myself in a way not pacing on stage, I still give it 150%, but it's what you do before you get on stage. So it's the warming up. It's trying to eat the right foods when you're out on tour late at night when there's nothing to eat but hamburgers and french fries and pizza. You don't want to do that every single day. So, you know, it's learning how to take care of this is a temple. You have to feed the inside in order to help the outside. A lot of a lot of us, you know, we've gone through where the outside looks great and the inside is just really messed up. Um, and so it's really taking care of yourself and learning how to take care of your body in that way so you can go out there and give that 150% no matter what and still feel okay after the show. Let's play um, Dookie Stick. That's video number four. The video you have? Gosh, can I get a copy of this stuff? So what's going on there? <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we actually, uh, we shot that video, I think, at the Roxy in Los Angeles. What happened was Indugo Chancellor, who I met while he was in Santana, he wanted to come out and sing in the front. He's like, I'm going to be the star on this song. I'm going to come out and sing in the front. Somebody got to play drums. Sheila, go play drums. I'm like, I don't know how to play drums. So anyway, I played drums and had a great time. So that was one of the songs I played. And uh, the thing about George which was pretty awesome um, when I left my dad's band, playing with George, having that opportunity to play with someone like that, that played, you know, Frank Zappa, he played Brazilian music, funk, jazz, rock and roll, gospel. He played everything. And so fusion, you know, we played music that was different time signatures. I don't read music. I don't write music. Everything that I write is from my ear. I sing melodies. I'll sing beats, whatever. But I don't read or write music. I'm just learning, actually. But the thing is with George is that he would play all these different time signatures, 15, 24, I don't know. He was just coming up with stuff. I was like, um, Uncle George, where's the one? You know? <laughs> and he said, you'll feel it. Just go ahead and play, E. Just go ahead and play. I said, Okay. So we'd start playing and I'd have to listen to it because things would just turn around. It goes, we're in seven, seven. OK, count it for me. And he'd play and I go, oh, I get it. So he allowed me to learn all of these different time signatures while being in his band. I actually got paid to just go to school, basically, you know, and it was so awesome because he we got to play everything. And that's when I even started singing and playing more with his band. And that's the thing is like trying to be versatile, sing, play, dance, do whatever. It's like, I'm just going to challenge myself. 
you know, and make it fun. And he was that guy that never said, Sheila, just play this on that song and just only hit the drum one time and then go to the chimes and then stand there and then play the triangle. He never said, he never told me to, never, the entire time I played with him, never said to play anything like that. He just said, you play what you hear and that's going to be the best thing because I can't tell you what to play because you're going to already know. He was also a big advocate of synthesis and trying different sounds as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had so many different synthesizers. The Mini Moog was one of his favorites. And uh, he just, you know, he had pianos. He had uh, different keyboards that he that they fixed to have different sounds. And he had this other thing that was built. I don't even know what it was. It didn't work half the time, but it looked pretty. <laughs> so you mean like the dookie stick? Yeah, that hardly worked at all. It didn't. Every time he tried to light it, it wouldn't go off. And he's just like, the stupid thing. <laughs> Nevertheless, seemed to be like a, a good prop to reel people in. It's like, oh, it's the Absolutely. guy. Like, it's a lot easier to remember that, oh, it's the guy with that stick rather than it's like, oh, there's a fusion player. who's like Exactly. No, that was his little gimmick. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get a dookie stick. What's a dookie stick? <laughs> A stick that blows out fire. Okay, that works. Well, it didn't work, but yeah. <laughs> um, on to another gentleman. Yeah, my brother. Yeah, he's uh, directing my videos now. So, yeah. Listen, any gig that I had, I try to bring my f family, my friends. So if you hang out with me, you end up in someone's band or something. <laughs> That's what ha happens with just the connection thing. Um, you just got to have chops, I guess. No, not necessarily. A good heart, be on time, learn your stuff, have some confidence, some fun, no drama. That's all. That's all I ask. Oh, no drama. Mm-hmm. I heard that. I heard that. <laughs> well, in, in a less comical uh, sense, drama was actually what happened right after this tour that you got off there. Like, I mean, you were a fan of this person. Oh, Marvin, yeah. No, it was uh, it was incredible. Um The quick story about that is one of the guys came to see us play and then he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the road manager for Marvin Gaye. Would you like to come and play? And I was like, of course, Marvin Gaye. I grew up listening to Marvin Gaye. So that song, um, I don't have a conga, but it goes, do, do, I'll do it like this. Do, do, tack, do, do, tack, right? Do, do, tack, do, do, Mother, mother, do, do. there's far too many of you. Crying, right? So that beat is happening. And it's like, I get to play that conga beat that I listened to forever. And Marvin Gaye is going to be singing, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? So I had, you see that, that there's three of us playing percussion. It was my brother and my cousin. So all of us play something. Right? <laughs> so anyway, we're playing and we're doing a, a rehearsal. And we had three of everything. We had three congas, three congas, two two or three congas, timbales, 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 bongos, 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 toys, 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 right? There's a 24-piece band. And so Marv is singing. He's a really uh, soft-spoken man. Every, Hi, Sheila, how you doing? Oh, it's a great day. That's, he's really soft-spoken. We're playing, and um, he's we're doing what's going on, and I'm playing that one conga because it, the one conga is that dun dun gak dun dun gak right? 
I'm playing that. And then all of a sudden I start dancing. I was like, ooh, yeah, we're in now. This is getting good. So I started dancing my brothers, and we all started dancing. Then the horn players are looking, okay, we're going to start dancing too. So the whole, again, everybody started dancing and getting their own steps and stuff. So I started playing, and then... I ended up going, dun, dun, dak, dun, dun, dak, dun, dun. I hit the other jump, dun, dak, dun, dun. and all. Now Marvin Gaye had his back to the whole band, twenty-four piece. All of a sudden, we hear, "Stop, stop!" Like he yelled, and all you hear is, you know, sticks falling and stuff happening. Like what? Everybody freaked out because we, we had never heard him yell before, and. He just turned around, he looked at the band, and he said, somebody played an extra beat. Oh, my God. So you see where I was standing. My brother was here and my cousin was here. And my heart, you can I said, oh, I'm scared. And I said, sorry, Mr. Uh, Gay. I, I will make sure that my brother never does that again. <laughs> Yeah. And then my brother, he put his hand up. He's like, yep, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So early on, that was 1982. Early on, I learned when, and this is the key to all my stuff I do, when not to play. Learn when not to play. So just play what you're supposed to play until there's a time such as whenever it is. And just play. And that's the problem a lot of musicians have now is that everyone wants to play everything now and get busy and no one's playing or listening to each other. And it just becomes a mess. So if you learn when not to play, that's the key. I had a drummer that played with me, dope drummer, but he wants to solo on the hi-hat. I'm like, why? Just keep time for like eight bars. Just give me eight bars of the same drum beat. And then they're like, oh, but... I'm feeling, no, don't, don't do anything. Don't move. Just play the same thing. If we all played the same thing and no one moved, it just gets bigger and better. If we just played the same thing and all of a sudden it would get intense because we would all become one. And all of a sudden you would feel this thing like a movement. It's like a movement. If everyone listens to each other and just plays, you know, just play what you're supposed to play. And then if there's other things to add, cool. And that's what I'm saying. I would rather have someone that is not a soloist, but will keep time all day long. You know, I'd rather that and has a good heart than someone who can solo and get crazy and bring drama. See ya. No, that that doesn't work for me. When playing for Marvin, did you have to adjust yourself mentally? Because, I mean, a lot of the music beforehand was about the embellishments, whereas that Detroit school is very much about cut to the chase, deal with the... Well, it was interesting because, again, there's three percussion players. We had to split parts up. We couldn't all just play the same thing. So each song, it was, you know, either bongos with a couple of beats and me with a triangle, you know, every 16 bars maybe, you know. And then there was a uh, a, a young lady who played vibes as well, and she had some percussion. So you've got four percussion players, drummer, bass, guitar, keyboards, horns, singers, um, there's a lot of pieces. So you can't just play whatever you want. You have to f really put things in place and figure out, well, we don't all want to step on top of each other. We got to figure this out and, 
and kind of split it up. So instead of one person trying to play everything, three people split it up and taking turns makes more sense. And then trying to stay out of the way of the drummer. How old were you at that time? 82? I don't know. I was born in 57. How old did that make me? 24, 5? 24. So you almost had like 10 years on the road by then. Oh, yeah. So is there any advice of being on the road etiquette that you can share with people who are just on the start of their path? We don't have enough time for that one. <laughs> yes. Okay. Like I said, be on time. Really be considerate of everyone around you. know, there's I can tell you 10,000 stories that have happened to me uh, on tour with other band members. And I've actually kicked people off the bus and said, get home on your own because that doesn't work over here. Listen, my situation was in my band, in order to even get in my band, you had to say that you weren't going to drink, you weren't going to smoke, no drugs. Um, you're going to be on time if you're late the first time. Slap on the hand, second time, $50, third time, you're fired. And you're, if I wanted to change your hair, purple, green, or yellow, I would be able to do that because I had a look that everyone had to have an image because I saw the picture of you need to have black hair with a little red stuff here or whatever. And you're going to wear the, you know, and what clothes you're going to wear. It was a vision. So, you know, I wanted us to be a club, a gang and say, we all we're all doing this together and you have to wear makeup. And you, OK, cool. Well, that's the 80s. And we all wear makeup the guys and after a while you know I, I i wanted to make sure that the band we all looked like we were doing this together and we had a great time that that lasted for a hot minute because after a while they were tired of going to do the interviews and putting on makeup but it takes work so really if you really want to do this you really have to be passionate about it treat people nicely because after a while this business does this and at some point you're going to run into those people The, the people that you ran into here, you're going to run into them when you're down here. You're going to have to ask a favor. You're going to need some help, you know. Um, just be a, a good person, man. It it just, it really helps to just be considerate of each other and respect. If you respect each other and, and love each other and have a great time, it, it's all cake. It really is. But that's said from the perspective of someone who already had their own band. Um, beforehand, when you were coming on as a band, especially as a young woman, then I guess you see a lot of behavior that maybe your parents wouldn't necessarily approve of. How do you defend yourself in that situation and make sure you stand your ground? Yeah, um, I can honestly say, say that I <coughs> never got anything by sleeping with anyone. I always said no. I've gotten offered ridiculous things. If you just sleep with me, I'll get you a record deal. Hey, you want your own plane? G5? Oh, wait, no, a hotel. Wait, I, it could be called Sheila? Inn? Hotel? Suite? Resort? Oh, Sheila. Oh, Sheila. <laughs> really, just like, and I would just say no. And then I hear other women sleeping, and I'm just going, I, I just, I wasn't brought up that way. I have parents that just, they, they're still married. They just had their 59th wedding anniversary that doesn't happen in this business so that's a blessing and they just but that's the home that I came from the upbringing um there were things that had been said to me and I just 
made sure that I was being respected in a way that I wanted to be treated as a woman, as a strong woman, as a loving, caring person. And even though I played drums in a so-called male, that didn't exist, but people made it that. And uh, I just happened to be a great musician. And I just so happened to be a woman. So, you know, it's a gift to be a woman. And I wanted to be respected as that. So I never back down on anyone trying to disrespect me, ever. Um, yeah. I guess one of the first, I mean, we're in the middle of the 80s now, and um, videos became very important. And maybe it's worth to look at one of your first appearances in a video for a, a quick moment. Um, so, like we said, it was the 80s, so videos became very important. Um, what did we see there in the first place? A scared little girl. <laughs> first of all, I was glad to be in the video. Uh, they had already done the record, so I didn't play on that. But um, the funny thing is, Lionel's like my bro my big brother. So I was supposed to be kind of like a love interest. <laughs> and every time he came to me, Towards the end of that video, and he'd look at me and he'd do this, and 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 I go seriously, this is not working. I can't look at you like that, you know. So we had a great time. It was just weird trying to dance. I just felt weird trying to dance in that dress. It was uncomfortable, um, but it was something I had never done. And being in the video on MTV was huge. That was like big deal, big deal. So go do it, you know. So I did. But big deal. I mean, at this time, you already had recorded with like Billy Copham, with Herbie Hancock. You played with Miles Davis. So like it doesn't get much bigger than that in the world. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you want me to act like it's an episode of 90-2010 or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, again, it was something I had never done to be in a video. And again, you know, MTV was the place to be. If you got... You know, they hardly let any black people on MTV at the beginning. Come on, let's get real. That was a big deal. So I was like, yeah, I want to be in the video. Absolutely. And then I brought my sister. I always bring somebody with me. <laughs> I'm telling you, hang out with me. We'll have a great time. <laughs> Do you recall hearing yourself on the radio for the first time? <laughs> yes. Um, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard. And I, w I had a rent-a-car. It was a Mercedes, a red one, I remember. with the, I had the sunroof open. I was making a left to go to this very famous deli called Greenblatt's. And <laughs> you know that place. Yeah, the lemon cake. And so I'm making a left to go into Greenblatt's. And, you know, there's two lanes on Sunset. I guess the third lane is sometimes you can't park. It's where the meters are. And so at certain times, you can drive through there. I'm making a left. And my and the song is on Glamorous Life. I was like, oh, my God, Glamorous Life. Ah, it's on the radio. It's the first time I'm hearing it, I'm yelling and screaming, oh, my God. And I'm looking to make sure. And then I get ready to, you know, pull up the hill. And a car slams into me, totals the Mercedes. I get out the car. First of all, I'm glad I wasn't hurt. I got out of the car and I looked at the person, this guy. He was just zooming down Sunset. And I turned around, I, I got out of the car, and I was like, are you okay, are you okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, are you okay? I mean, he messed up the car, and it was a rental car, too. And I said, I I'm okay. I said, that's my song on the radio. 
anyway, then I called the guy. And these are the days, you know, you just keep ordering things. I was like, hey, man, I just got in a car wreck. Can you come bring me a black Mercedes? No joke. That's what happened for real. And then the tanks, like with Marvin, the tax man comes knocking as well. Yeah. No, taxes I paid. I'm good. <laughs> I don't mess with Uncle Sam. Well, at least Marvin got a really great record out of that. Yes, so. he did. Marvin did, yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing. Again, the tax situation, you know, you got to pay your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what people wonder a lot about, especially when you're coming from the programming world, um, they get all these fancy plugins and all these extra loops of percussion, but they got no idea of how to really place them and stuff. And I guess we're going to do something a little later where we are in the studio where we're going to set up the same trump kit again and you can ask all those questions about how to mic them properly and how to make sure you get the best possible recording. But I guess for now it might be nice to get a sense of like the different rhythms because I guess a lot of it got summarized under Latin or Seltzer or just terms that encompass like a myriad of different rhythms. And if we could kindly ask you to maybe explain a little bit of like what to look for in different rhythms and what makes them specific, I guess there might be one or two people in here that would appreciate that. Well, first of all, let me say this. Like I said, I don't read or write music and I just play from my heart. The second thing is I don't know hardly any names of any rhythms that I play. I know that something that my dad played and <laughs> I just kind of mimic that. Um, like a rumba or Mozambique or a samba, I kind of knows those basic, you know, terms and rhythms. But to break things down, like some of my other friends that really know the history. Um, it's not a history lesson. It's about rhythm now. <laughs> okay. Uh, but basically, I want to say this. And uh, I am a drummer who, well, I am a percussionist who plays percussion on drums. I'm not the drummer who plays percussion. And there's a difference. So... Um, if I had congas here, I would show you a rhythm on the congas, which I can do, but I'll just play them on the toms. And what I did was everything that I played on the congas, I said, you know what, if I played them on the drums, I wonder would that work? And it did for me. And also, I kept changing the way that I set up, like I said. And if you can, if anyone sees that, you'll see that the double kick pedal is on the outside of the hi-hat. And most male drummers <laughs> uh, use the kick drum on the inside. But because my back went out, I tried to figure out how I could play sitting straight as opposed to like this. Because after a while, I was all twisted and my back hurt. Oh, here. So I'll just I'll just play like a a Mozambique that I would play on. Uh, you're not going to hear all the tones, but what I would normally play on uh, congas. I said if I played it with the sticks and this. Right? Then do it with the kicker in. The kick drum is actually playing out of the part that I played here. And then I had the hi-hat. 
That's still the Mozambique, still the same part. So it started with this. The, the, uh, the kick drum, the second kick drum. Then the hi-hat and the kick drum, double kick. beat but if you just use different techniques the left <clears throat> thank you the left uh, kick drum I kind of use as another hand if I play with one kick drum it just doesn't feel the same so what most drummers would play with the one kick drum I use the second one because it's easier <laughs> the other way is like I'd have to practice um, so basically for me, like I said, let's see, playing drums, the important thing is to be able to play time and really have great tempo, you know. Some of the things that drummers do in playing drums is if they're playing really hard, let's see, we'll just do, you know, this. If they're playing really hard, sometimes it... They play loud, uh, and it starts to speed up. And when you ask them to play soft, sometimes it just slows down for whatever reason. And it's hard to try to keep time and play really soft at the same intensity, the same tempo, without the tempo changing. It's really hard to do to play soft and still play the tempo. Or even singing and playing is even crazier. Or when we're playing the kick drum, which we'll probably do with Andrew, we'll, I mean, uh, with a click, trying to play to the click, 
talking or playing or singing and the click is in your ear, the rest of the band can't hear it, but you're gonna play not like this. Cause then it sounds like you're playing to the click. You have to play kind of relax, still in the pocket, but and just play relax with that click going, you know. Now I'm getting punch drunk because I haven't slept since I got here yesterday. Ooh, I'm on, I'm on 32 hours being up. That's not good. Okay. So now I feel like, uh, okay. Um, before we break for lunch, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and um, as a vocalist and a songwriter again. Uh, when I wanted to start writing and being a producer at around 14, 15, I started, I think my first recording little instrument was a cassette that then you could have two tracks on a cassette. Then it became four tracks on a cassette. Then you, I got a reel to reel tape and I started cutting tape and using that. So yeah, I just bought equipment, you know, and just taught myself. And then Again, being in the studio with my dad and with different people with George, I ended up engineering a lot of stuff because I just like let me let me punch you in. I'm I'm quick. I can get that in and out real, you know, do do just like that. So uh, a lot of the stuff that you hear on Prince's record between '85 and '88, I pretty much engineered a lot of his solos. The stu it was just him and I. If he couldn't punch himself in, then I would do all of that. Yeah. Um, this instance. Intimacy in recording is, um, I mean, it's one great privilege to have all this stuff at hand of professionals, but then sometimes you do want that intimate um, recording situation. And I mean, we talked about Marvin before and some of his greatest work was just him in the studio and, uh, and one engineer and that's that. And you had similar experiences of working in a really confined uh, sort of way of like, with how many people present? When do you think you get your best work out of you? Well, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of times I'm recording until three in the morning, so sometimes six in the morning. Sometimes I write better at night. I don't know if it's because it's quiet and I do, you know, record other things during the day or if it's vocals or something else, whatever. But sometimes there's just no one in the studio. I record a lot of my own stuff myself, but I really love recording with the band live. My last record, Icon, we did that. We recorded live in the studio. I set up my drums where I could see the whole band. And we played, um, they had not heard all of the music that I had written for their project. So um, I played them a little bit of it and they got what key it was in because I couldn't tell them because I didn't know. Um, but here's the melody and here's the, uh, here's the, you know, the tempo I want to play. And we'd play the song. So we did, we recorded all the songs with my band live in the studio. We did everything in three days. And then I started doing the overdubs and the vocals and some percussion that I couldn't play, you know, since I was playing the drums. And we did it, you know, fairly quickly. But I like playing in the studio with people. <laughs> It's more fun, you know. And also the other part of it is writing. It's like I don't want to just write by myself all the time. I like collaborating, collaborating because other people bring ideas, like I said, that I would not think of and influences me to do something totally different that I wouldn't, you know, do. And that's what's great about collaborating. One of the things, again, writing songs, you songwriters, make sure you have something written on paper with people. And someone says, I wrote the bridge. No, you didn't, you know, and you get sued later. It's a couple of people, friends of mine sued recently. Well, they had to pay a whole bunch of money. And when you're sampling, you know, giving the person credit that you're sampling, 
that'd be very important. Um, but what I do, uh, which I think is um, a lot of the writers in Nashville do, if there's three or five of us in a room and whoever's not writing or doing anything, you need to step out of the room. Only the people are going to write. And if there's five of us that are just going to play and jam, I split it five ways. I don't care if you just wrote one word, you're in the room, you're playing something that meant something to me and to the rest of, you know, the people playing. And I split it evenly five ways or three ways or six ways, whoever's in the room. I don't want to argue about I did a third of this and I wrote the course. That's the most important. That doesn't go on. So make sure you you figure out before you start to write something with someone that you know what you're going to do and make sure the business is taken care of. Very important. I would like to join everyone, or have everyone join, and thank Ms. Sheila Escobedo for coming. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.